Hello, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome once again to the Netflix podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Canadian Netflix. I'm Dylan Clark-Moore, and I'm joined here by two very special guests. They are the creators, hosts, and curators of Retromania, a monthly screening of classic films at London's Highland Cinema. Welcome to Mr. Jeremy Hobbs and Victor Laurentis. Whoop, whoop. Yay. All right. Welcome, guys. It's great to have you here. It's great, great. to be here. Great to be here. To be uh, back here. Talking this about Jaws? Are you kidding? Yeah. This is the first time I've been back since our notorious uh, Human Centipede 1 and 2 podcast. Just when you thought it was safe to go back and do Actually, another Netflix <laughs> podcast. <laughs> you, you know what's funny, though, about the fact that we're, we're back tonight for Jaws is that um, it's like when we did the Human Centipede uh, podcast, we were just basically talking about like guts and body parts and human remains and stuff like that. And now we're talking about Jaws, so we're, it's going to be guts and body parts and human remains. You know. But a little more A little more, a little more highbrow, maybe. <laughs> uh, Jeremy, uh, you've been asked this question before. Is there anything interesting you've been watching on Netflix recently? Okay, well, there's something interesting that I almost watched on Netflix or Netflix. Um, this it's funny because yeah, I didn't actually watch this film, but I I started watching it and it seemed super interesting, and I've just never gone back and uh, and finished it. But there's there's this thing I I don't, I don't know the woman's name. This this really bizarre thing happened where there was a, a young woman uh, I think in Europe, um, and she had some sort of horrible brain injury. I'm not sure if it was like a like a car accident or something, or if she had like a stroke or something. But she sustained fairly substantial brain damage but because of the specific type of brain damage that she had um it started doing all these really bizarre things to her like these weird like oral and visual hallucinations and strange thoughts and just it's like she was basically living in this sort of bizarre dream world you know where it was sort of like her entire life just became this strange kind of uh uh you know lewis carolian fantasy sort of experience and um and instead of like being really freaked out by it uh, or depressed about it she just sort of you know, started to embrace it. And she thought, I feel like I'm walking around in a David Lynch movie every day. She said, I think I'm just going to contact David Lynch and see what he thinks about this. So she actually <laughs> somehow, I'm not sure how, she she contacted David Lynch or at least his people and, and told him the story about what happened to her. And then he was, you know, like, oh, this is super fascinating. Nice. <laughs> you know, he, was, he <laughs> thought, that sounds great. He was super fascinated by uh, what was going on with her. And so he somehow uh, contributed to or spearheaded or executive produced or something, this documentary about her and what happened to her. He didn't make it himself, but he he lent his name to it and and possibly uh, some money or some direction or whatever. And so there's this documentary on Netflix right now called My Beautiful Broken Brain about this girl and her whole experience. I'm not sure if I have all the facts and details right, because like I said, I just just like started looking at the thing and then didn't get a chance to finish it but it's it's in my queue and it's something that i'm i'm really looking forward to uh to watching soon and uh victor well, you don't have netflix correct i don't have netflix is no. that a i just uh is that a stance? Well, i've got rogers cable so i've got show me right now right and, yeah and plus i don't have a whole lot of time yeah at home but i try to buy blu-rays and victor's apartment's like a blu-ray factory yeah, yeah. <laughs> pillars of blu-rays Well, the movie that we are here to talk about this week, we've already mentioned, it's from the year 1975 from director Steven Spielberg. We're going to be talking about Jaws. Before we get into it, I should let you know that today's episode of the Netflix podcast is brought to you in part by UnLondon's 121 Studios, London, Ontario's premier digital media hub and co-working space. Visit 121studios.ca for more information. So before we get into the movie, we always like to look at how Netflix tries to sell it to people. So it has two different descriptions, depending on whether you're hovering over the title or whether you're clicking. So first, when you hover over it, Jaws is described as being three men on a mission. Hunt the greatest great white ever. What you can't see can rip you to shreds. Ouch. How do you feel about that one? 
intense. Is that a movie you'd watch? <laughs> I, f I feel like uh, it's really fascinating reading the little synopses of, of each movie on Netflix because I, I think, I don't know if it's, do people just send them in or is it like, do people contribute <laughs> these things or, or does somebody actually write these for net that works for Netflix? Do they have a whole team? Because sometimes they're, they're really bizarre. Like sometimes they're really out there. Like sometimes you can tell they've almost like purposely just sort of dialed it in or it'll be like one <laughs> sentence or, so, or there'll be something like really deeply sarcastic in it and you think like that, that can't be yeah on purpose our yeah. the running theory of the podcast is unpaid interns i right, feel like right, that right. kind of jives with yeah with how they do things yeah to or me they, that introduction might reach people that would have otherwise ignored the movie yeah. but i don't think jaws needs that but no, uh, no, i don't definitely know not. if you want to reach those other people that were just never going to watch it maybe. like right. the alliteration in there the greatest great white you know the greatest they're, great white they're yeah. getting literary when you click on the title, the description changes to When an insatiable great white shark terrorizes Amity Island, a police chief, an oceanographer, and a grizzled shark hunter seek to destroy the beast. When Marilyn Chambers, the insatiable great white. <laughs> is that is that what it was? <laughs> oh, wait, no, I'm just thinking of Marilyn Chambers, insatiable. Well, that's sort I like of that one, how actually. it was pitched when it first was released. Like, there was newspaper ads that uh, had descriptions like that. Mm -hmm. I have a, a copy of that ad. And then at, later, I didn't see that anymore. But opening week, I did see that. And there was a warning at the bottom that said, don't wear a good pair of pants if you mm. come to this movie. <laughs> make, make sure you're in a bathing suit. The genres that this movie are, belongs to are classic movies, classic thrillers, thrillers, and horror movies, and the moods that Netflix suggests. If you're, if you're in the mood for this, you might be into Jaws, would be suspenseful, scary, or dark. I think I spend most of my life in a either suspenseful, scary, or dark mood. Yeah, at least so, when I, at least when I look in the mirror after I get up in the morning. I think of it as a great sea adventure. It's everything else you think it is, but it's also that, and yeah. that's what I love the most. Like about. a modern updating of the old man in the sea. Or yeah, it's got a salty old dog vibe yeah. to it, and it's for like sure. two different movies: the first hour mm -hmm. and then the second hour out to sea. Yeah, I, I like <laughs> to think of it as as, as a giant two-hour-long Old Spice advertisement, personally. You can smell Robert Shaw just coming off the screen. You know, you know what that smell is. That'd be a is. terrible scent. It's, or old, it's old Spice <laughs> and Chum. <laughs> they started the making the chum. beer that he drinks in the movie. Really? Yeah. Like reproducing really? the can. I don't know the whole story behind that, but it was limited editions of. And I think Does it, it come pre. -crinkled? I think it said something about Jaws or Quint on the can, but otherwise the can looked just like what he was drinking. Does it taste better than that Simpsons Duff's beer that they started making, which is really just like orange pop or something like that? Like, hopefully. Normally, I'd ask why you guys chose this movie, but, but actually, we didn't. the movie led to us doing this podcast because about the same time that you guys announced that uh, the July screening for Retromania was going to be Jaws, Netflix added the movie as well as two of the sequels. Yeah. to their catalog. So I just wanted to talk to you guys about the movie itself, but also kind of what Retromania is and the the importance of the theater itself. Because, I mean, Victor, like you're a projectionist. Projectionist, yeah. Yeah, that's the right word. The right. best projectionist. Thank you. There you go. The best projectionist. You heard it here first, folks. Probably not well, first. It's probably been said before. I think this is, I, I forget how many years in a row we played it every summer. About seven, I think. Yeah, about seven. So... Let's say it's seven. Seven years ago, I bought a 35 millimeter print of Jaws, and it was half faded. It was it was made up from at least three different prints, and it was partly faded. Part of it was great color, but lots of scratches. And that's the first retro that we did with Jaws was that print. There were bite marks in it. Yeah, it was it was <laughs> it was very rough. 
but it was still really cool. There's a license but, uh, plate off to the corner. I decided right after that I'm going to find a better print, like a really yeah. good print. And we're going to need we're going to need a better print. We're going to need a better print. <laughs> That's what I thought. So I became friends with a guy that sold prints to Spielberg himself back in the 90s. Big film collector in Seattle. And uh, he had uh, two prints left. And they were IB Technicolor. They were made in Britain. So they were completely unfaded. If it's IB Technicolor, it's a, diff- it's a dye transfer process. And unlike Eastman films, which would be faded to red or brown, the colors like the day it was shot. And then also the, the print was in really excellent condition because it had been babied its whole life and everything. So I spent quite a lot of money buying that print. And then even when I got that, there were little bits missing, so I had to use part of my original print. So I, my print, my good print now, is actually a mixture of four different prints. Okay, It's so mostly one print, right. but for little snippets here and there that are missing, I had yeah. to use some faded Eastman for like a, a, a half a second here, half a second there. It's like if Dr. Frankenstein took a bunch of different body parts from shark attack victims and sort of like sewed them all together yeah. into this one print. It would be Yeah. And then there's some Fuji color stuff, which doesn't fade to red like Eastman, but it has it shifts to purple. So there's a couple of seconds of that. And I I used it just for dialogue, you know, continuity, no no missing dialogue and the music because mm-hmm. the parts that were missing would have just messed those parts up. So I'm pretty happy with, with the print I have, except for one thing, the opening credits. I just wish uh, they had done that better. They made right. It's different than a normal print would have been back in 1975 if it's an IB Technicolor. So this print is from 1975. It is from 1975. That's what's so fascinating about these but IB Eastman Technicolor prints. But Eastman prints in 1975, before they were faded, mm. had, had a black background, pure pitch black, with really bright white letters. And right. it just stood out like crazy. Like it was scary with the music right, 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 right. at that moment that you're looking at that. Roy Schreider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfus. Or, or if and you then, read it all in a linear line, it just says Roy Shaw, Richard. Because <laughs> the way that it's staggered in a triangle. Roy, Roy Shaw, Richard, Jaws. So my print's kind of like, it's kind of a dark gray background. And the, and the white letters aren't as bright and vibrant. But uh, other than that, it's fine. And right after that, it's... I shouldn't even mention that. Life on planet Earth has kind of a dark gray background, I think. So it's it's probably just more. (laughs) We should probably talk a little bit about prints and print fading. Like, first of all, just for anybody out out there listening who doesn't really understand the process, uh, basically uh, prints like Kodak stock and so forth from 35 millimeter film prints before 1983, you know, would look great at the time, but they would start fading over years. They would fade and fade and fade and you'd lose all the blue and green hues, all the inks in the print. And so eventually you'd get you'd wind up with something that was just like a pinky red sort of mess with no like delineation of color or anything like that. Uh, in 1983, Martin Scorsese, film historian and director Martin Scorsese, um, uh, petitioned, uh, it was Kodak, right, uh, to start creating yeah. a, a new different type of stock that didn't fade, didn't color fade. And he got basically like everybody in, indus- in the industry to sign it, all these other directors, you know, uh, cinematographers and everything. And so he basically said, look, you've, you've got to do something about this. And so they actually did. They took heed of this and they, um, they actually started making a new stock around 1983. So if you get a 35 millimeter print that was made, you know, in like 1984 or 1985, you know, it usually still looks pretty good today if it's been taken care of. But if you get anything now, like a like a regular print uh, before 1983 or from the first little bit of 1983, it usually just looks like a pink, a 
apocalypse basically yeah but that's what's so cool about the ib technicolor print is that is that they were made with a different as a dye process right a different yeah. type of dye process that doesn't fade so you might get a little bit of age wear and tear and maybe like a little bit of like just overall fading or whatever but essentially the colors remain intact so this print we have from 1975 we if we watch it tonight you know there's still blues and greens and the water still looks like water and it's 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 really fascinating because like a lot yeah, of the other not, prints would not, not faded look like this at all um and then, like, uh, they were experimenting with this low-fade Eastman film as early as 82. And then there's prints of John Carpenter's The Thing that some reels are faded and some reels yeah. are, are perfect, <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's prints out there that are like that. And then there's some prints that are all low-fade and have good color. And then some prints, like the one we accidentally played, that's totally faded. Yeah, yeah. The, the accidental yeah. train wreck. Yeah. Uh, the thing I had no idea it was that faded. That's the first time I'd ever seen the film all the way through. You know, like I remember seeing it on city TV and stuff when I was a kid, just like little bits and pieces here really? and there. They used to be on TMN, the movie network when I was a teenager. But, um, but the first time I actually watched the whole thing from beginning to end was the time that we had this really red, like pinky red faded print. And so there was no color delineation. So it was funny for me because the film was, you know, only about a 10th as gory as it actually is. When I first watched it, I was like, oh yeah, it's not, it's not as graphic as everybody says it is. And then I, I, uh, I rented a Blu-ray <laughs> of it. And I have to say, I have to say out of, out of all the Blu-rays I've seen thus far, and I've seen many, um, the two best looking ones in terms of older films that have been re-released are John Carpenter's The Thing and E.T. Steven Spielberg's E.T. Yeah. Both of those films, the Blu-rays, like they, they just look so good. The image quality, like the the, the minimization of the minimization of grain and uh, you know the color uh, temperature and everything. It just, it, they look like they were made yesterday. Like they could have came out last year. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, I watched this Blu-ray of the thing and. Um, and I was just like, it was like a whole different movie. It was like, it was like, because uh, everything's like snowy white or kind of cold, icy blue. And then yeah, when, yeah. when you have like that the, the creature lost. effects and the blood and aliens and gore and everything, it's really vibrant and really, you know, everything's very slimy and, and, and uh, color saturated. And so it was just like, uh, if the whole print is red, you don't, you don't get the, uh, the full effect. Well, there's a story behind that print because I played it at the New Yorker back in 95, 6. And... There was only one print in Canada that Universal had, and it was in BC. So for our showing, and it had not reached the cult status that it has now at that point yet. It was big, but not as big as it is. And so they shipped that print all the way to Ontario, and then they decided it's going to stay here. It was not color faded yet at that point. Mm -hmm. And I heard it was the same print, and I asked uh, this other theater owner, because he had just played it, what it, what it's like, and he said, oh, it's pretty good. So that's the only reason I... I was tricked into it and when i saw it i was horrified mm -hmm. that it was so faded mm -hmm. i was like this is not the movie this ruins the movie one thing i hate is color fade on you know i love film but if it's color faded then i'm not really on board with it hey we should probably talk about jaws <laughs> yes <laughs> how's that for a segue this is just the intro yeah so jaws. Well, i think i'm the oldest one here so i was 11 years old when jaws came out and uh it was playing downtown london at the odeon odeon one huge theater and it was a beautiful theater and the thing to do that summer all of us like all my friends we would just go see jaws over and over and over and over again we'd go it'd be on like five times a day so we'd go there at one o'clock and watch watch it all afternoon like watch it three times and then go home and then the next day do the same thing again i don't know why we didn't know why that was just the thing to do <laughs> and eventually your fingers were all pruned up like when you stay in the bath too long yeah. right you just... yeah yeah 10 more minutes yeah. And the uh, I thought you meant we had ten more minutes left of the podcast. I was like, oh, uh, yeah. So I was going to go quicker now. Um, <laughs> and I didn't even realize how how 
great the movie was. It was just, I loved it, it was yeah. fun. But then a couple of years later, I was already working at The New Yorker, and it was uh, not a repertory cinema yet, it just played movie week to week, second run stuff usually, and they played it there and, for a couple of weeks. And then when I watched it again there, with, you know, I was like two or three years older, I was just like, wow, what a, this is a really great movie. And that's what I hear, I've heard over the years from so many people and, you know, directors that were inspired by it and so on and just how the how great a film it actually is. It's, it's this Hollywood blockbuster, just like everyone said. Yeah, it's one of the first Hollywood blockbusters. Yeah, it might have been the demise of a lot of film and stuff like that. Not really. It's unfairly criticized. The demise for, of a lot of child swimmers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> thing, maybe. But uh, it's also a great film, you know, and it, and it should be thought of that way. And uh, yeah, so I, it's, it is my favorite movie of all time. Just by principle alone, like, because that's the first movie that I discovered as a kid and realized, I love this movie. This, mm -hmm. is, this is a great movie. And then as I became an adult, I realized this is a really good movie. Yeah. It's like, kind of a template film in a lot of ways. I mean, it's sort of like one of those films that... Uh, I mean, you know, you, you go back and watch it now and you think like, you know, oh, I've seen this kind of thing before. I know what's going to happen here. Oh, this is the part where the shark's going to, you know, but you don't realize that, that this movie really set the tone and the stage for like a lot of the, those types of thrills and chills and action, just the way that he staged things. And he was really young at the time. Was he 27 or something? 26, 27. 27. Yeah. Uh, Steven Spielberg, young up and coming director. And, uh, and he directed this film and it, it's just very... The way that it's done, it's the way that he chose to stage things, the way that he chose to, to shoot things, yeah. just within the frame and everything. It's very, it's almost like a textbook. It's one of those films that you could show in film school and say, "This is how you stage a suspense scene. This is this is how you build up someone's expectations that something's going to happen and then it doesn't, and then you you know nail them with something when they're not expecting it. And this is how you shoot like a, you know, like a reaction to something. Or there's there's so many. You know, he basically uses every trick in the book in there. You know, there's yeah. the there's the uh, you know people walking by and the camera getting closer with each you know beat. And there's the you know the the, the classic Hitchcock vertigo shot when he when he sees the uh, shark attack and it you know all the depth of field changes behind him. And uh, there's basically just uh, you know there's the POV you know the classic POV shots of the shark, which apparently were partially done because he he didn't have the budget or the money required to actually yeah. do a lot of actual a lot of shark it. effects. So he said, how are we gonna do this we'll just do it from the pov of the shark but i think that really creates a like attention it's become so iconic to see that shark pov swimming under the water with the john williams score a lot of the greatness of it is by accident mm. because they had no other choice like the shark wasn't working they didn't have the money whatever they had to just do yeah. this and they were writing day by day like yeah. the script wasn't finished which is insane and uh it all just worked out you know they it worked out i think i think a lot of the greatest films and a lot of the greatest things in films a lot of the most classic and iconic moments we think of now in films you know from like you know apocalypse now or you know various different things all happened by accident because you know they were trying to do this but this fell through or this didn't work or this prop or costume or the they didn't have enough budget or they you know they they thought they were gonna have another day to shoot but they they couldn't so they had to you know do this quickly or all in one shot or from some angle and then uh, sometimes these things have become some of the most iconic moments in cinema and I think sometimes working with limitations actually forces people to be more creative and, 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 and yeah. mine more ingenuity because if you have all this time and money to work it out then you, there's a certain laziness that comes with that say oh yeah you know we'll, yeah. we'll get this but if someone says you got to have this done by tonight this is your last chance to shoot this scene in this location and you think holy shit we don't have this prop we don't have this extra cam it's like how am I going to do it? okay well we're all going to do it in one shot and we're going to you know do it like this and it's you know and and sometimes uh, I think that adds makes for some really fascinating uh, compromises yeah. and things like that's that. that's a good point about 
uh, digital filmmaking, the strength of using film, you got to get everything worked out right to get the shot. You can't just let the camera yeah, run. It's, it's not so tape or uh, it's not digital. It's actual celluloid running through a camera. Yeah. So they tend to make it count. Like a 35 millimeter mag was about 10 minutes, right? So you'd have about like 10 minutes to work with and then you're out of film. And film's very expensive too. Digital cameras now, it all depends on how big your card is. You know, you can have a camera going for two hours now yeah, and yeah. just film and film and say, oh, just keep going, keep going. Try that again. Just, you know, take, you know, 32, you know, but but back then it's like, okay, guys, we got this much film. We have this much left of the day to shoot. You know, we don't have any more money. You know, it's like, we got to get this. So, so. Uh, staging and, 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 and practicing and rehearsing and stuff were a lot more important back in the day. They'd really have to make sure that everybody knew what they were doing, not just the actors, but also the, the technical crew, like the focus puller and the lighting. And it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like a dance. It was like a ballet or something. It's almost like more like theater. Jeremy, you started saying beforehand your own relationship with Jaws, that you actually kind of came to like it because of the Retromania screenings. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, when I was a kid, um, I think my first real favorite movie was Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is also by Spielberg, you know, made just a few years after Jaws, right? Or, or I guess almost a decade after Jaws, but it was, like but it was still, I still think of it as one of the, the earlier uh, kind of more pure Spielbergs. Um, and, and I really loved that film, um, and, you know, and various other films from the time period, you know, Ghostbusters, Back to the Future and so forth. Um, and then and then when I was a teenager and I, and I got more into the history of film and art film, so I started to really resent Spielberg, not because of the older films, but I, just because of the, all of the later period stuff he was doing. I think when he had kids, he kind of became, I think Leonard Maltin called it like a, a, case, a serious case of the cutes or something like that, where he would just, his film started to change where... Yeah, like Hook was played directly to the kids yeah yeah and just sort of things like uh you know where he would just like every film had a, like, a, like a super happy ending and he would never leave any loose ends like untied and he would always you know have like make sure the protagonist and everybody you know was you know all safe and delivered in the end meanwhile in jaws he's straight up killing kids he's just killing kids <laughs> like right just eating kids on the beach and but it's interesting i remember he, he said uh that having children uh completely changed his outlook on life and filmmaking everything in general and he said that he would never have made uh close encounters of the third kind you know had, had he been a father at the time you know because he said right, no one no film father that celebrates ever, a father walking away yeah yeah family. he yeah. said no father would ever just walk away from his family like at the end and i'm thinking like you know if an alien civilization wanted me to like come with him i you know i'd consider it uh, <laughs> <laughs> i'll be back in a year honey i've actually i've actually but, had that conversation with my dad he was on the podcast once we were talking about armageddon and oh, right, he's right. uh he's in he's into astronomy like he he does astronomy work up at the university and <laughs> i specifically remember him saying and me struggling with it for a while him saying that you know if they if they're inviting people to like go on a mission where they're like you're not coming back but you're gonna go farther into space yeah. than anybody else ever has he was like if i pass the fitness exams i'm going like sorry yeah. but my, my father said the exact same thing to me you know he's, he's always had this fascination with outer space and, and astronomy and everything and he basically just said like if he ever had the chance to go into space, he'd take it, you know, and I, and I said, I mean, I, it's, it, you know, it's probably not going to happen in his lifetime where he'll, he'll have the ability to, but he said it probably will in mine, but he said, uh, I said, you know, when I was a kid, I said, well, aren't you worried? I mean, you know, because, because there's the Challenger accident and everything. I said, you know, like, what if the ship blows up? What if, you know, what if there, an asteroid hits you and you, you know, what if you die? What if you get lost out there? What if the engine cuts out and you can't get back and all that stuff? And he just said, all of that is worth, it's all worth taking the chance in order to do something so, so grand and so spectacular. And uh, I just think within the context of uh, Close Encounters, you know, I just feel like um, the fact that they had made contact with humans and, and that they wanted, you know, someone to, to come with them and maybe help them learn about humans. I thought, I thought the, uh, the scope of what he was being asked to do, like for humankind, 
was was very important like it was it was i think it was important enough to to take a risk and saying you know i'm gonna i'm gonna go off with these guys for a while you know yeah hopefully i'll uh, i'll see you soon but uh but i just remember um you know just uh just sort of like the later period work you know and then he, and he started getting like really cgi heavy and stuff and after a while i was just kind of like fuck you steven spielberg <laughs> but uh but 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 going back uh, you know the fact that we started screening jaws you know um on it, we do it every year too like uh, as a summer thing like every july you know kind of because of the anniversary we screen this film and it sort of made me go back and start rewatching all the early spielbergs again you know because uh i hadn't actually seen I don't think I'm not sure if I'd ever seen Jaws like all the way through. I might have watched it like as a teenager on VHS or something like that with a friend of mine, but I but I never really like sat down, especially not in the theater. And so sitting down, you know, in the theater and seeing this film, uh, it's like a whole different experience, you know, especially like this this great IB Technicolor print and everything. Yeah, it's like, you can feel the Atlantic Ocean splashing. Yeah, in your face. you can taste the salt water in your mouth. <laughs> but it's like it just reminded me of like what it would have been like, you know, for like a you know teenagers at a drive-in or something, and back in the '70s, like going to see this like sort of thrilling summer blockbuster movie, you know, with all the thrills and chills and everything, you know, and it's a really cool experience. And so it made me kind of go back and. Uh, you know, and start rewatching a lot of the old Spielbergs again. And, and all that stuff is really great. Like that 70s Spielberg, like early 80s Spielberg, you know, people forget this, but he was like, uh, he was a huge Rod Serling fan. I mean, he was a huge fan of The Twilight Zone, which is my all-time favorite TV show. And he actually, won his first, one of his very first ever directing jobs, I think it was his first film directing job because he'd done some TV shows and stuff, but uh, he directed a segment of uh, the Night Gallery movie, which was the sort of like the pilot for Rod Serling's Night Gallery. He directed the segment with Joan Crawford in it, and he was just like in his early 20s or something. You know, he's like, you know, very young, like 20, 21 or 23 or something. And uh, and then he, he went and did that, that TV movie with the Twilight Zone's writer, Richard Matheson, very famous like science fiction writer and everything, that did like, uh, you know, like the... Is it the Omega Man? I am Legend. I, f I forget. Is the book called the Omega Man, or is it I am Legend? Or it's like the Last Man on Earth. There's been about three different film adaptations oh, of it, right. but that's okay. one of his yeah. classics. But he's done so many great like Twilight Zone episodes and like written a lot of short stories, like yeah. Button, 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 and so forth. But uh, but they teamed up and did that film Duel for Duel. TV, yeah. where Richard Matheson wrote the script and Steven Spielberg directed it about the the sort of uh, you know vague phantomous kind of uh, semi truck that's chasing. Uh, yeah. Uh, what's his name? Uh, the the, the, uh, the Dennis Weaver. Dennis Weaver, the the, the, the neurotic in, innkeeper from uh, Orson Welles's Touch of Evil, who was also in a Twilight Zone episode. I think it's called Shadow Play. But uh, but yeah, I went back and revisited all these things, you know, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and all this, and it's great stuff, you know. It's just 1941. I, I still he have not seen Jaws at the beginning of 1941. Does he really? Yes, and that was that was just he had made Jaws, Close Encounters, 1941. And he's already spoofing Jaws. That's uh, that's one of the only <laughs> Spielbergs that I haven't seen. It's um, it's really amazing, technically incredible, mm. but it wasn't the comedy it should have been. Right, but right, if right. you don't watch it as a comedy, just watch it as what it is. Sure. It, it's amazing. Yeah. And there's a, a like an extended director's cut, which is actually I don't know I, I, from what I, I I haven't really seen the extended cut, but I hear it's right, better. Right. I've got I've got a soft spot for Spielberg in my heart because my my all time favorite movie of my entire childhood that I watched like every day, you know, and just had the thing memorized. Yeah, I just come home from school and put it on like every like three hundred sixty five days a year is Back to the Future. Oh. Even though Spielberg didn't direct it himself, but he was a producer. Yeah. And so and then the whole thing has has a very Spielbergian vibe to it and everything like that. And him and Robert Zemeckis, you know, kind of did this thing and uh and it's just probably probably one of the greatest nineteen eighties films of all yeah. time, right? And I Back have a beautiful future. print of it. 
He does. Which we played. As we a have retro. screened Back to the Future on celluloid many times. But the but what you're asking me about Jaws, Dylan, um, it's just that every year we would screen this thing, like every summer, you know. And you know, and and at first I was kind of like, why are we showing this so many times, you know? But it's like <laughs> it's like with every new time I watched it, you know, it just it started to take on this. Uh, nostalgic quality of like uh, of like visiting an old friend or something right because it because it's very location specific it feels like this amityville this this island is like a real place and all the characters roy scheider and his wife and like they all they all have like these little quirks and idiosyncrasies and there's little jokes and stuff and so it's like you know the, it's one of those films where, where the more times you watch it you know it's like you, you just kind of it, it, it sinks under your skin more and more you know yeah. you kind of get to know these people so now when i see it it's like visiting an old friend I, it's totally like gives me that kind of like warm feeling of like you know when you go to visit like your grandparents or something like that it's like uh it's like oh uh, it's summertime so we're gonna go back to the island for a weekend and uh get eaten by a <laughs> it's so great that it uses creature. real townspeople as extras you know mm-hmm. like they're the real thing they're there oh there's that great shot um i don't know if he's one of the real townspeople but he must be there's the part where um it's just like this real like salty old dog like crazy <laughs> like sea captain guy like wanders out of the amity harbor harbor master's oh, yeah. office yeah, i'm not sure yeah. if he's supposed to actually be the harbor master he just it just shows the doorway and this guy walks out and he's just got this like old school like fisherman's hat and this big pipe and he's just wearing this like sweater yeah, or something. Yeah. And, and it's just ridiculous it just holds on this guy for a minute and then he just sort you know he like lights up his pipe or something and he just wanders off and it like pans over to the, to the main action but uh, it always reminds me of like it, it, something like right out of like a norman rockwell painting or something you know it's like it's like a norman rockwell painting called like you know early bird gets the worm or something and it's just this like you know wholesome old <laughs> salty dog with his pipe getting ready to like you know set out at sea well you know the guy that helps richard dreyfus out of the boat yeah when yeah. we first see that quint is kind of based on that guy okay yeah so like he helped like, with a lot of uh that like robert shaw hung out with him right right there was someone else that he hung out with as well but he was one of the guys. You, you just said the magic word right there, Robert Shaw. I, I just Robert I just Shaw. have to say that for me, Robert Shaw just makes this movie. Oh, like yeah. I, he just owns this movie. Like yeah. everybody in this film is great. Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, everybody's yeah. great. But it's like it's almost like the first half hour of the film almost has like a slight dryness to it, you know. Um, perhaps intentionally, like it's kind of like you know just setting up the town and the situation and the mayor and everything, this family, you know, and everything, and and they're at this town meeting, you know, and then it's like one of the great entrances of a character in film, you know, with like the nails scraping down the chalkboard, and then it just pans over to this the crusty old Robert Shaw looking kind of like the guy that wandered out of the harbor master's office, you know, and he starts in with the you all know me, you know how I make my living. And uh, it's just, you know, as soon, as soon as he enters into the film, you just know that you're in good hands. You just know that, okay, we're going on a ride now. You know, Robert Shaw is here. And, and the fact that in real life on set, him and Richard Dreyfus did not hate each other. Yeah, like he yeah. was constantly just beating Richard Dreyfus up. And that's what's going on in the movie. So it was kind of... Yeah. It was perfect. It's like perfect. There, it, it feels. I very think he real. came in there with this old school. You know, I've been in all of these movies. You give me a hand. Yeah. you got shitty hands, Mr. Hooper. <laughs> it's like you know, and then Spielberg's a very young director at the time, and Jaws was only what, like maybe his third film or something <laughs> like that. And and it's like uh, you know, I think he comes in here and he's like, you know, let let me show you how it's done, kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah. And then gradually, I guess, warmed up to them. But it's funny because he he was, I think, battling a, like a really severe alcohol problem he at was. the time too, yeah. and he was like drunk a lot on set yeah. and stuff. And that that classic scene. Probably like the the greatest speech in the film, you know, where mm-hmm. he's talking. Which about he that. wrote. Did he? Well, did he, he actually. It write was that? written by several people, but he rewrote. I think the last right. version of it. Well, he he did. He insisted that they all drink for real when they do that. 
yeah. uh, great scene where, where him and, and Richard Dreyfus are comparing, uh, you know, wounds and, and yeah. scars and stuff like that, you know, like, and, yeah. uh, and they drink to each other. Well, the night before, the, the take that's the takes that are in the movie, the yeah. night before, he, he asked Spielberg if he could get really drunk mm -hmm. and do it, and he tried and he couldn't and do couldn't it. couldn't use any Didn't of that work. stuff, right? Yeah, so then I guess he disaster. begged Spielberg if he could come back the next morning and mm -hmm. just have like one more go at it. Yeah, yeah. And I guess he just nailed it in one take. That's the famous, you know, 1,100 men went into the water. Yeah. <laughs> 316 come out. And it's just like, that's probably the most like sobering speech in the film, right? That's the one yeah. where he, he goes, it's the pivotal moment where, where Quint goes from being like this sort of funny, crazy, salty old dog character, almost kind of cartoonish to like, holy shit, like yeah. this guy went through the, the ringer, you know, like he's, he's been there and back, you know, and then it also completely, you know, contextualizes why he's a sharker and why he's so determined to get this thing and stuff. Cause you really, this guy's basically got like PTSD He's basically just like <laughs> living in this nightmare. Yeah. You uh, you mentioned that there are little moments that you notice kind of every every time you watch it. And the one that I hadn't seen before is when they're comparing their wounds. And right. Roy Scheider kind of peeks down. He pulls up his own shirt. He's thinking about, oh, am I going to tell them about what happened to me? And then he yeah. does in the In the New York Police Department, I assume. And then he just kind of like quietly. Yeah, yeah. Goes, and he's still... Like there's still camaraderie there. He still sits down and jokes around with them and sings and everything, yeah. but he just doesn't want to put his story out into what's going on there. Th those are the exact little details. Yeah, I don't, I don't, about. I don't know if that's just good team building where he's yeah. just like standing back and like it's more important for these two to have their moment, or if it's like yeah. like a personal discomfort or, or what it is. But it's a yeah. great, it's, 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 it's really fantastic because because you see that he does have a scar there. Like it's mm. like uh, he lifts his shirt up and it looks like he does have some sort of sort of an old wound or something, but then he just kind of. Uh, shakes it off and Rich, yeah. Richard Dreyfus says that he is watching uh, Robert Shaw give this speech and tell this story and he's looking like uh, just spellbound and in awe and horrified and everything and he said I'm not acting that I'm just that's me I'm like staring at Robert Shaw doing yeah. this you know so he didn't have to act very hard on he, that he's just staring at Robert Shaw thinking like that's the blonde chiseled guy from from Russia with love like <laughs> how is this possible <laughs> My, my favorite little weird moment uh, of Jaws is that's some bad hat, Harry. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's been bothering me forever. Cause Bizarre non sequiturial moment. <laughs> it's uh, whose production? Brian Singer. It's Brian Singer's production company. Right. It's called Bad oh, Hat Harry. Right, right. And I kept thinking, like, every time I see a Brian Singer yeah. movie, I'm like, where the fuck do I know that line from? And so watching this again, I was like, that's the line. Yeah, yeah. This is where it's all coming that's some from. Some bad hat, Harry. Have you guys seen the documentary called The Shark is Still Working? It's I amazing. Know. I have and not, it, it was I released theatrically and uh, it's also now a special feature on the Blu-ray. Like you can watch it on there. I've seen I'm friends with it. the director and the writer. And the writer his name is uh, James Gallette. He's incredible. So we're Facebook friends now and over the years he uh, he's the kind of guy that go that goes to every location and uh, takes like does a selfie, you know, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, Jaws, Close Encounters, Back to the Future. He does the most amazing. I think he's putting out a book one day on the because he's 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 just doing great. But uh, the shark is still working. I really highly recommend that. It's not so much about how the movie was made. It's just about the, the aftermath and the legacy and and just the reaction 
to Jaws. I thought it was about, about like the shark not getting residual checks for the movie, so he's like working doing valet parking. Like right, the shark right. is still working, unfortunately. Yeah. There, it's working in the <laughs> kitchen in the kitchen of a restaurant. <laughs> Actually, speaking of the kitchen of a restaurant, um, this really funny thing happened uh, where uh, the woman, okay, the little the little boy that that gets eaten on the beach, Alex Kintner, mm-hmm. right? The the woman who plays his mother, mm-hmm. and she you know comes and and really you know reams Roy Schreider out you know for keeping the beach open or whatever, and she's wearing that like totally over the top like black clad veil <laughs> funeral outfit right yeah well i guess she years later i guess years later like decades later or something she was in martha's vineyards again and she's always she, have to slap people yeah she's slapping the, the shit <laughs> she slaps you as a viewer just for watching but she was in martha's vineyard and uh and she went to this restaurant and she was looking through the menu trying to figure out what she's gonna order and she saw that there was a, a menu item called the alex kintner sandwich and so she started saying you know to everybody you know hey i i was in this film you know i played alex kintner's mother and they they ran into the back and this guy runs out and it was i don't know if it was the owner or the chef uh, but it was the, the kid who played Alex Kintner all grown up. And he was like, that was me. Like, you were my mother. You know, and they had this reunion. And she slapped uh, him. Yeah, she slapped him and, and then slapped the sandwich. But yeah, it was the first time they'd seen each other since since filming that. So it was an odd sort of reunion. So, something also has to be said. This has nothing to do with anything. But, but something also <laughs> has to be said for just the sheer and utter ridiculousness of the Maris jacket that he wears. With the anchors? With all the, the anchors. little anchors it's on so it. Good. You know? I mean, all of his jackets are ridiculous. But that one in particular... Is just like completely insane, you know. Like yeah. it's just um, it's r- it's so over the top because when you first see him, you're like, why <laughs> yeah, why yeah. why is this like weird real estate agent so popular? Why is his yeah. opinion so important? Everybody like it's a Dan Aykroyd character. This is gonna Saturday be Night one of the best Live summers we've ever had. Yeah, it's really it's really bizarre. He's 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 you know refusing to shut the beach down when like you know teenagers and, and toddlers and stuff are being just like munched down <laughs> by this like massive great white shark and and walking around in this like ridiculous. <laughs> Like you yell shark, and we got a panic on our hands on the Fourth of July. You yell barracuda, people go what? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I don't know why my mayor sounds kind of like Robert Shaw, but (laughs) (laughs) just just everyone is just Robert Shaw. Like when you talk about the movie, just like Roy Scheider's wife is Robert Shaw. (laughs) You know, I I I had actually made this note about like you know because I was thinking about the film and you know and all the 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 sort of characters and character introductions and how it all kind of unfolds, and I was thinking about Roy Scheider and what a great like. 1970s like film personality this guy was you know i mean he's in like marathon man and uh and uh was it the french connection right? yeah and just you know and all the these, seven ups yeah like he's just and i started thinking about just like 70s male actors in general and i started thinking about how they just didn't have to be like attractive whatsoever <laughs> like they just like 70s male like gene hackman you know all these people you know uh just just you know, like, you know, the, the women, you know, were always attractive in these movies, but the men, you know, they could just, you know, have like, they could be overweight, they could have like man boobs, like dad bod, <laughs> they could be bald, they could have giant sideburns, hair like growing out of their ears, they could have like, you know, ju- they could just be the most ruddy, like weird looking dudes that you'd see like drinking in the back of clicks or something like that. And, uh, and they, and they were just like A-list celebrities, you know, now, yeah. nowadays there's all, there's so much pressure you know, on actors to, to just be like completely perfect and chiseled looking, you know, you take these people like Ben Affleck or Christian Bale or Hugh Jackman or whatever, and they're doing another Batman or Wolverine movie or whatever, and they just do like months of personal training and like cutting and, and, and all all these workouts and special diets and the high colonics and skin treatments and all stuff, and they, uh, you know, they just, they, they have like their, their chests are completely waxed, and you know, it's like you, you have to just be like a, like a 10 out of 10 Vogue or GQ model, like basically to be in a film now, and then and there's something really like refreshing 
about like 60s 70s you know yeah. cinema because you know you'd have these these leads these lead actors that were just you know like old and bald and hairy <laughs> some of them just have like hairy backs and fucked up teeth and stuff and they, and they were just like you know like and their love interest was like Bridget Bardot or Jane Fonda like look at like Donald Sutherland or Elliot Gould these guys you know this is amazing in a way right i mean this is it just takes the pressure completely off <laughs> yeah so, yeah so cuz everything's so you know formulaic now it has to be perfect it has to be the blockbuster you know every damn thing yeah and they, they seem like real people back then i mean you, you see a movie now you know and it's like you know like it, like just take something like you know like insidious or something like that and the couple's like you know like patrick wilson who's very handsome and chiseled and and like um uh vera farmiga who's gorgeous and stuff you know and you get these people that are just um even if it's just a movie like just a thriller or something about like a couple that moves in a house and gets terrorized by the neighbor or something it'll be like you know their kid will be like Zac Efron or something like that. You know, it's like everything is so uh, like perfect and sterile and homogenized and stuff. You know, I mean, it's great. I mean, they're, it's attractive to look at these people. You know, they're like pleasant looking people. But then you, you always wind up feeling guilty about yourself. You know, when you walk out of the theater, you know, it's like, oh, I got to hit the gym now for six months or whatever. <laughs> Start eating grains. And it's like um, there's something there's something, you know, when you watch like 70s cinema in particular, I mean, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. But just like there's something particularly grimy about the 70s where it, it seems more real. It seems like these are real people. Like, it seems like, you know, you're watching stories about, you know, like these families or people or groups of friends, or whatever, and you think, you know, these are just real people that, like, you were, you were friends with in high school or, like, you know, like American Graffiti or something. You know, you think, uh, you know, it's not like every person in every road, like the guy that works at the 7-Eleven or, like, the, the woman that, you know, like, is the ticket person at the movie theater is, like, a 10 out of 10 perfect-looking you know, like uh, fashion model or something like that. It's like I think it helps having ugly kids in the movie too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like when you're not trying to prove something, having these like gorgeous star children. I, I the vibe of this movie, I felt a lot like uh, the original Poltergeist because right. I, I revisited that on Show Me. There you go. Oh yeah. Um, after doing the remake for the podcast. Right, right, right. About a, about a month or so ago, and it was so refreshing just see like just ugly fucking kids. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just, well, the kid, the, the young kid in Jaws, just has his teeth are gone. You know, it's like his both of his front teeth are just like you know like ripped out of his skull, and uh, you know he smiles. I got hit by dad. a vampire. Yeah, totally. It's just like you know, just I think ugly children probably help any film to create a sense of realism. You know, because most kids are ugly, right? It's like, people are always showing me like baby pictures, and they're saying, you know, oh look at this, you know, he's like he's six weeks old now and stuff. Isn't he so cute? And I think. He looks like David Bowie in The Hunger when he's really old and dying, you know, and he's like, he has to be, like, led up to the attic by Catherine. <laughs> it shouldn't be all about good looks. You know, it should be about real characters, good stories, good films, yeah. you know. And yeah, Hollywood's all about just doing whatever superhero thing is going to make the most money, best yeah. everything. Well, these, these characters looked like their characters. Like, we have the guy who he wants to like the mayor who wants to show right. so much like he's part of the town that he dresses in <laughs> yeah. anchors to prove his point he walks around in a clown yeah. suit all day just to show how dedicated he is to the town right or the other townsperson who always stands out every minute that she's on the screen i forget what her business is i think it's like a bed and breakfast or something but uh, the woman with like the insane tan and the fake hair <laughs> right, the leather oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah who i mean she more than anyone are you going to close the beaches she's exactly. like the, the poster child for skin cancer basically yeah she yeah. more than anybody is concerned about the beaches staying open and yeah, she's she, willing to sacrifice a few toddlers just you know, to keep <laughs> that beach open, you know? right and it's, it's perfect she business. looks like a piece of shit because she's a piece of shit yeah. it's perfect yeah. 
her, you know, her theory is like it's a thinning the herd is a good thing in Amityville, right? You know, keeps keeps for good business. <laughs> if there's new if business there's in. less locals, that's less competition yeah. for the tourists and less yeah. ugly children, right? <laughs> you we can just weed out some of the homely kids, and we could have some more of these. <laughs> well, uh, Alex Kidner was probably the least ugly kid in this movie. Yeah, that's true. So with Brody, something else that I appreciated with him to make him this really relatable protagonist, as we talked about, is just how the tan. <laughs> there's that <laughs> that uh not quite the same quality of leather as that that other woman but how how inept he is on the boat when he's supposed to be right, right. like the big <laughs> the big hero of this town and yeah. he's got this whole you know ironic thing that he's he's on the side how does he say it he's like you, you can't tell that it's an island if it's you're not looking from the, water. Look at it from the water or yeah I, I think giving your main protagonist of a film like it like this complete handicap like this like emotional <laughs> handicap is like is a really interesting idea that that kind of ties back into you know saying like you know like the seventies stars don't have to be like super attractive and like if it was a movie now, and uh, you know like Ben Affleck or Christian Bale or somebody was like in the Roy Scheider character they'd have like a black belt in jujitsu and stuff like that. <laughs> they, they they used to work for, like for like they were a marine an ex marine that was in a black ops thing for right. like a couple of years and they'd just be able to like you know but but Roy Scheider yeah they actually give him this uh, this like terrible handicap and for, it, it's not even just a handicap for the sake of being cute it's a handicap that it makes him a liability to the safety mm-hmm. of the other people on that boat. Like he doesn't know what he's doing when he's trying to tie off that one barrel. Right, and right, he, almost right. he almost cuts off Richard Dreyfuss's legs yeah, yeah, and yeah, pinching yeah. him in the water. And he's knocking yeah. shit over all the time. It's fantastic. And he just wants to go back. Like, can't we go back and get a bigger boat? You know, I think, I think there's a lot of tricks, you know, in, in films, in thrillers and horror films and like suspense pictures. And like, this goes back to what I was saying too, about how, how sort of brilliantly, a very young Steven Spielberg sort of had a like a sense of these things, um, and, and obviously Peter Benchley is it Robert Benchley or Peter 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 Benchley, Peter Benchley who cameos in the film as the yeah. news, news reporter, right? Uh, but uh, but yeah, like uh, just just the idea of of ratcheting up tension in a suspenseful situation by saying you know we're dealing with this island and there's a situation in the water and there's this like massive shark that's you know stalking the area, killing children and so forth, you know, and the guy who you know, essentially the guy who has to deal with this situation has just like a crippling panic attack fear of, of being in the water, even just like near the water. You know, he just doesn't, he doesn't go in boats. He doesn't swim. You know, he just doesn't like want to go anywhere near water. Yeah. And then meanwhile, you know, he, he just has, he has to deal with the situation. So it's a great, it's a great exercise in like ratcheting up tension because if he was just this guy that had no problem with water and he was out there swimming, you know, it wouldn't be that big of a deal, but you see him on the boat, especially some of those, like the, you know, little rickety ones or he's trying to Dreyfus is trying to get him to go right out on the front of the boat so we can get a sense of the size of the shark, you know, just from the scale of the human body of the shark. And he's just <laughs> no, freaking no, 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 out. No, yeah. yeah. Or the fact that, you know, in order to get from like the front of the boat back in, into the, the main cabin, you have to kind of like walk right along the edge, you know, and hold onto the rope or else you slip right off in the water. And this stuff is great because, um, you know, he, he's essentially the, the, the quote unquote hero or, or one of them who's got to be out in the water and deal with this crazy situation and if that's not like harrowing enough that they're like fighting this massive, you know, killing machine, uh, you know, in this rickety old boat, you know, it's like it's like he's just also has just petrified fear. Even if there was no shark, he would still be terrified just being in the water, you know, and, and, and having to climb all over this this wet boat and everything, you know. But the fact that there's like a 25 foot great white shark in the water, <laughs> it's just like, it just makes it uh, pushes it right over the edge. He just feels he has to go out there, though. He's like guilt-ridden it's his fault that he didn't close the beaches right away yeah it's his fault it's also like 
the whole point of him taking this gig was that this was supposed to be the safe space. There's just kind of like this one risk that might potentially right, come right. up. And it's like, well, buddy, now that time has come. Yeah. So, you know, if you yeah. dealt with the mean streets of New York, you should be able to handle this. That's an interesting thing to mention, you know, talking about like characters with PTSD and everything like that is that, you know, um, which, which, which actually also brings back to that thing that you were saying about how he has this sort of wound that he was going to talk about, but doesn't, I mean, it could, it could totally tie into this, right? I mean, he's from New York. He's living in this violent city, you know, doing like police work in this in this urban, you know, because New York in the '70s was a lot lot more dangerous and, and violent than it is now, um, and uh, and so something probably happened to him, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. something about that character. I mean, he probably got shot or he was sta- or stabbed or he was in some kind of yeah he's altercation or something. He was bragging to Hooper that night yeah. when they were out on the boat uh, that there's just no crimes here you know yeah it's like he, he he took this job on purpose because whatever it is that happened in new york that's just only vaguely alluded to obviously has dis- disturbed him to the point where he just wanted to get away from the, the big city and all the crime and violence yeah. and everything and just go somewhere totally tranquil and peaceful which is another great like thriller suspense horror trope of of saying you know like uh, like arachnophobia or whatever uh, you know, like Jeff Daniels in Arachnophobia, you know, spends the whole movie battling like this crazy like spider infa- infestation, you know, and then in the end he, he moves to a completely different place, you know, to, to, to completely get away from this and it, it turns out to be like this horrible earthquake area or whatever and the, <laughs> the whole house is shaking at the end. Uh, also produced by Spielberg, I think, that mm. film, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, just the, just the idea of, of having someone, uh, there's a lot of horror movies and thrillers and stuff that start with the main character either going through a horrible trauma like like on screen or having just had a horrible trauma and maybe being released from the hospital or a mental institution or something and saying you know okay now it's it's time for the downtime you know now i'm gonna go stay in this little house out and you know and like you know the new england countryside or something you know which then turns out to be like haunted or has like a gateway to hell in the basement or something right but it's a great horror trope to sort of you know have a fragile or damaged protagonist that is then thrown into like another completely harrowing situation and hooper he's just rich but he loves sharks yeah. and now he's got to deal with this shark and quint he's got some great lines too when, he, when he's yeah. introduced you know i was talking about how, how great the uh, the robert shaw introduction is but but it's funny because the richard dreyfus hooper introduction is kind of it's it's also like almost just as good but in a completely different way like robert shaw comes in as quint like just super confident just like you know, are, are you going to keep fucking around or are you going to let me take care of this thing? You know, like he just has all the confidence, the cajones, you know, he's got the chutzpah, the, the uh, braggadocio, uh, you know, where's my thesaurus? Um, the hubris uh, to, to do the same. And then Dreyfus comes in and he's all like bumbling around and stumbling and he can't get off the boat. And people are like, you know, he's scared those guys are going to beat him up. And he's just this... Uh, you know, totally like out of his element, kind of like bumbling. He's like the nerdy guy in class that went and became like a marine biologist or something. But he like, you know, always got beat up by the Quint guy. <laughs> it's like the Quint guy is the guy that picked on him in high school or something. But that creates like a great dynamic because they both have these great character introductions and they play these sort of like amazingly like sort of cartoonish uh, characters, but uh, but in two completely different ways, you know. And then Scheider's like the straight man. He's sort of like the straight man, serious protagonist. So then on, on one side, you know, you've got the crazy, salty old dog. And on the other side, you got the kind of like neurotic, excitable ADHD, like marine <laughs> biologist guy. It creates like a great dynamic yeah. between the three of them. It's like yeah. a sort of weird, holy trinity of dysfunctional uh, high school students or something. Yeah. And Hooper really wants to impress Quint, too. Like he wants to win him over, you know, in some way. And at yeah. the end, he almost sort of gets his chance. Like Quint says, Hooper. Okay, what is it you can do with these things of yours? 
Yeah, it's like he's gonna give him a chance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, the pivotal moment is that moment where they, after like spending the whole day like arguing at each other's throats, they they start drinking and uh, let's drink to our legs. <laughs> you know, they they, they start uh, you know comparing uh, war wounds and stuff like that. And, like I, I've always found something like really oddly homoerotic about that scene. You know, when that was brand new together and uh, in a theater with a thousand people, man, yeah. was that. You could hardly, you couldn't hear half of it because it was the it's audience. It's a great was, scene. I mean, it's one of the the best scenes in the whole yeah, film. Yeah. But there's there's just always something I found strangely kind of homoerotic about, like laying, leaning over and saying, "You know, touch my head." Of each other. Yeah, yeah. He's saying, you know, like reach up here, touch touch my head, feel the spot. Like, and then their legs over the table. Yeah, and you want to drink? Drink to my legs. Over I'll drink to your leg. And, and, he, and he leans over and takes a real good look at Hooper's leg. And, and just the fact that his name is Hooper adds to it somehow. I wonder. I'm wondering now if what happens to Brody was like something happened on like a harbor in New York. Like he got like roughed up by the mob or something like that. And We're like putting that, this whole thing together right that's, here. That's where his fear of the water came from. Because it's, it, it seems weird to me that his wife is so willing to talk about his neuroses to everybody. Yeah. Like when Hooper comes over, she's never met this man yeah. ever. Like, oh yeah, my husband's scared of the water and <laughs> yeah. like talking in front of these other guys at the pier about like, did you take your Dramamine? And yeah. He's probably like, shut up, mom. Shider's <laughs> sitting there looking totally constipated, just completely uncomfortable. Um, yeah, he he comes from that era of men where where you just had to be tough all the time, or at least pretend to be tough, and you you know you didn't talk about your problems, and you you never showed weakness. You know, like my, from my my father's generation, basically that kind of like uh, you know if you if you talk about your neuroses, it makes you a weaker man or something like that. But that's uh, what you get married for, so she can talk about your right. neuroses and protect you. It, it it does make for like a really interesting dynamic, though. That that scene where Hooper comes over with the wine it is a really mm. great scene as well. I, I love that Scheider's just staring off. Just completely, you know, upset yeah. and affected by getting slapped by that woman, and just and thinking, then you know, his wife is Martin hates boats. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He, he hates water. Martin, I think there's a clinical name for it, isn't yeah. there? Drowning. Drowning. Yeah. Well, he's just <laughs> brooding. He's, he's just sitting there brooding. He hasn't touched his food or anything like that. And and, and Dreyfus comes down, just kind of awkwardly looks at the whole scene and says, "So how's your day?" You know, and it's just like it's a great icebreaker, you know, because he actually makes Schneider kind of grin and and. Uh, and then they just get pissed up and head out <laughs> on the water. <laughs> Helps so. himself to the food. Yeah, but yeah. I'm not drunk enough to go out on a boat. Yeah. Yes, you are. No, yeah. I'm not. The, the way that Dreyfus just sort of co-ops his meal, like the way that he just sort yeah. of um, yeah, yeah. slides in. You're not going to finish that? And then he's like already eating it by the time Shider <laughs> can even answer. <laughs> and even the end credits, they're, it, it doesn't end till they get up off the beach. Like they yeah, stand up. Yeah. And they, plus yeah. they're, cha- they're talking as they're going towards the beach. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a really bizarre fade. Um, speaking of like the, the editing I know the, the fade you're talking things about. like yeah, yeah yeah there's the part uh, <laughs> they're out in the boat and uh, it, it's, it's after Shider like sees uh, the shark for the first time and there's that great shot where he just he just stands up so quickly right like, yeah. it's almost like he's kind of out of frame and he just he just pulls back into frame like so he like, snaps like an elastic band and he's got that look on his face with the yeah. cigarette hanging out and yeah. of course goes in and delivers the classic you're going to need a bigger boat line right. which apparently was ad lib by Roy mm-hmm, Schreider mm-hmm. it's not actually in the script but uh, but there's that great thing where they're trying to figure out like what they're going to do and uh, Schreider wants to go back and get the bigger boat and all this stuff and of course Quint just you know he's just dead set on like no we're going to we're going to stay out here we're going to get this yeah. thing and there's this weird moment where uh, Scheider's like, like, you know, yeah, but we could radio in and get a bigger boat. And it's like right in the middle of him talking. It just does <laughs> this really bizarre, completely abrupt, like, crossfade. To Quint. Quint's whistling. like whistling. Yeah. And there's a sunset. And then it's just sort of like, 
Yeah. It's know, just it's later. So, like, it's so dismissive of Brody. Like we've yeah. heard you say this already. <laughs> yeah. Like even as the audience, we're telling him, yeah, just yeah. shut up. Like let's hear what. It's Quinn like even the film say. itself yeah. is adopting Quinn. And then it's sort of annoyance with him. Just, hey, you know, like. We're, and then it's totally night. They're in there eating, and the whales in the background. There's not. There's not many films that that will just literally do like a crossfade, <laughs> like just a dissolve in the middle of someone talking. Like there's stuff where there's people maybe talking in the background, or someone says something really important, and then it kind of trails off to like a wide shot where you see a bunch of people like partying or something. but there are very few films where a main character the main character in fact is like in mid-sentence like hey I think we should probably and it just like completely just goes into something else like mid-sentence like just that got big laughs but I, I, back in 75 because you I, could just hear him say but I think we should break it in just bang just gone yeah but I think I mean I, I said it as a joke, but I think that is actually what it's saying. It's like no, this yeah. we this man has no authority on this boat. Yeah, he's or, the or put, over the film for that matter. Yeah, yeah. or he, the radio. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah. see what happens when he tries. That's great. That's yeah. just great. Yeah. No, nobody has authority on Quint's boat, but Quint. <laughs> Quint, Quint will even just like get, give a look. And then the film will actually edit itself, you know. Like it'll actually, he'll just he can stop the film. He could like just create a dissolve or like an abrupt. He could do a wipe if he wanted to. If he just swept his hand the right way, he could do like a George Lucas wipe across the screen. Like he was completely in control. That's a man in control of his environment, so master just, of his domain. Just <laughs> all right. So yeah, lots lots still to love and talk about with this movie. Yeah. Jeremy, I, I, we kind of said off air that got to yeah. make sure that we don't not talk about N- the None score. of the viewers are, are aware oh. in any way of the pee break that we just yeah. took. Right? Even yeah. Spielberg um, says the movie would be half what it is without that score. Yeah, the score by John Williams. That's that's a huge uh, a huge uh, thing that we need to talk about. Which um, one? Academy Award. The year? score for Jaws is amazing. Um, not necessarily the doodly little happy parts when they're. That's the what boat, everyone thinks really you're talking about. Bizarre, really. I was just like, what? Like what? Like what? <laughs> but no, but I'm talking the main score, the main like shark theme of the film is one of the most iconic film scores of all time I think mm. like of all time like it's probably like if you just even said to someone like film music like film score music like what like what just comes to mind like instantly when it like, was first played to Spielberg he, he thought it was a joke yeah he told he completely thought it was ridiculous and uh John Williams uh who, who at the time wasn't the the, the the huge renowned composer that he is now I mean I, I don't he hadn't done as many film scores no. back then and he was a lot younger and he, he was just kind of getting started in the business and um so he'd like sort of painstakingly worked out this theme and then Spielberg came and sat down. Okay, you know, like, well, what have you been working on? And he's like, okay, this is what I got. And, like, Spielberg just kind of, like, burst out laughing. It was just like, no, seriously, though. Like, that's funny, John. But, like, <laughs> where's the, you know, what's what's the real film score? And John Williams just like, uh, that's it. Know, that is that's the it. real film score. But it's just one of those things where it's just so like, so eccentric and, and minimal and, and strange. You know, I mean, there's sort of a... There's an old school Hollywood type of film score where you have like a big giant Philharmonic orchestra and you do this big by the book thing. And he just did a very, a very minimal, almost like absurdly minimal kind of evocative little, little abstraction. Just, just riffing on this one little theme, the little classic, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's just so completely effective that you know it's become like like this this massively iconic thing you know and so many other films have aped it and and, and parodied it you know and 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 if you play that for if you play that that little tiny snippet of film score for someone that hasn't even seen the film it's like they know exactly what you're talking mm-hmm. about you know they know that's yep. the shark that's jaw that's the pov shark yep. cam you know um basically like like 
anybody that you could go up to and, and play that for would know exactly what it was from. And, and that's, there's, you know, I mean, you can't say that about that many scores. I, I mean, think airplane starts with the plane flying and it's like, yeah, right. Yeah. They, they have a scene, I think, I think it's in that, that sort of comedic horror movie house, I think, or is it house or house two or something where somebody's like walking through the house and uh, you hear that kind of John Williams-esque music playing, sort of like the scary kind of uh, cello music and, uh, you know, and it's leading them up this hall, and it kind of seems like it's coming from this bedroom. And they go in the bedroom over to the closet, and they open the door, and there's like a woman playing cello, like <laughs> in, the, in the closet, like she's just like in there for whatever reason. But yeah, it's just it's just uh, there, there's only there's only certain film scores that that have become like so iconic that if you just hear like a little snippet of like I mean if you hear like the Star Wars music, you hear the Imperial March or something, you just immediately know like Empire mm-hmm. Strikes Back or yeah or. Uh, Maybe even like the Indiana Jones theme. Absolutely, or like that. Or I would like, never walk out of Raiders of the Lost Ark or any mm-hmm. of those movies until the, the, till the credit, credits, till the curtains yeah. shut, because you'd hear the entire every yeah. every piece of the score during the credits, which would be like ten. Yeah, minutes. and John Williams did all that stuff. I mean, he did the, he it. did the Star Wars music, he did the 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 Jaws music, he did the Indiana Jones theme, and, yeah. and even uh, new stuff like the Harry Sh- Potter well, main Schindler's theme. List. He did the main Harry Potter. Theme. He did JFK. And he said that was one of my most heartfelt, important themes that I ever wrote because he really loved JFK. And if you really listen to that theme, it's really heart-wrenching. I, I appreciate that you brought up the uh, the little piddly music that they have oh, when God, they're out at Which is my favorite music on in the world, like some of which, my favorite music ever. It's it's amazing because it's it, like it's it's not even that it's jarring because it's so soft and light compared to the dun. It's just like it's wrong. Like the fact that it comes back when they're building the cage yeah. in this moment of like real tension and they just have this like whistle while you work kind of like ding ding. I ding. felt like there was something real uh, the first time I watched it, it was just um I think it was I I don't even know if I watched the whole film. It was like I think I was with my friend uh and we were watching it like on VHS or something back in the nineties or something. But but I just remember um after building so much tension with the the main you know sort of cello theme and and the minimalism of it and just the sort of barren you know like these it's just these deep chords you know ringing out and stuff i remember thinking that it was such an odd point of the movie but you know what that is, is like, that is like like flutes and stuff that's like that. the out to sea theme like it's more first, like out to lunch it's first heard when the when sure. the orca goes leaves right out to sea <clears> and then it's uh, common throughout, like it's it's in there, which right, John Williams does in Star Wars, Empire mm-hmm. Strikes Back. Yeah, but everything. John Williams is called theme and variation. But to me, that music, <laughs> like I disagree. I love that music. It's haunting to me because yeah, it's nice, but it's also kind of there's like a haunting. Do you think of it as kind of like a calm going before the storm kind of vibe or something yeah. like that, or like it's like a fake out or something? It's like oh, yeah. friends having fun on a boat, and then it's just like they get bit in half mm-hmm. it's almost a joke mm-hmm. yeah yeah it just seemed like it's such a strange moment to me because it's like they're out at sea and the sharks like you know what holes in their boat and they're you know they m- could possibly die and they're yeah just, they're they're, they're preparing to go into the water in this cage which you know what no one thinks is a good you know what i recommend from. listen to the actual soundtrack like on vinyl or cd mm-hmm. whatever there's more there's more and it makes more even more sense and now when i watch the movie i can't help but watch it knowing that like having hmm. being very familiar mm-hmm. with the soundtrack Sure. The full soundtrack. Maybe maybe the the full piece of music that you're talking about yeah. was like edited out during that abrupt crossfade. <laughs> like maybe just there, there was originally a 12 minute scene there where the entire theme played out, but he was just like, nah. It's just him it. making really compelling arguments for turning back and yeah. But a lot of that is also sea adventure music. You know, yeah. it's like, and I and I and even as a kid, I thought, yeah, some of this is overly like 
wow. I, but that that's that was my impression. Like, wow, in this kind of movie, we got music like this. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I, in a good way, I was thinking anachronistically that. ballsy. I think I think, <laughs> I there think is... in later decades you look at it and, and you make fun of it. But at the time in '75, no, I well, was I, like, I, 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 was I have no problem with the theme for the most part. I think that it's really well placed and it does evoke this like adventure of going off to sea. And you know, the last forty-five minutes is just men going off and being men and doing this manly adventure. Yeah. But just in that one moment when they're preparing to go back under the water, it feels <laughs> a, a very Don't forget, movie. there's also his song, Farewell and adieu to you, fair Spanish lady. And That's it's, try, a great it's moment, kind of a, yeah. a variation on that. Mm-hmm. There, there is an element, like when you're talking about like sea adventure, like adventure on the high sea and stuff like that, there, there is this, this, these like allusions to that type of thing in Jaws. It's not really like fully like that type of movie. I mean, it, it is sort of like a, like a thriller, like a suspense picture, you know, sort of like a, a summer blockbuster kind of thriller. But, um, there's definitely just because of the subject matter and and especially the town they're in and everything and especially because of the character of Quint there there is that kind of like old man in the sea kind of like Ernest Hemingway kind of vibe to it there's that sort of like Robert Louis Stevenson like Treasure Island like pirate kind of you know like the those those old pirate movies and you know like uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and stuff like that you know because because Quint's got this real old school sea captain salty dog kind of uh, what's the guy's name from all those like Master and Commander books too what's that uh, Captain uh, got some rid- ridiculous name uh russell crowe plays him in that movie it's like a whole series of books about this ship and this crazy captain. good movie it's like master and command it's like uh you know it's, it's some crazy alliterative name or something like that but um yeah it's just it's just and it, there's Jaws. the moby dick angle yeah yeah like the whole captain ahab and moby yeah. dick and fighting the whales like it does have that adventures on the high sea vibe of like that sort of like an old school kind of matinee Cereal, what do you call it? Like the cereal, like the Republic cereals or whatever, you know, just kind of like, you know, like, and next of the adventures of Quint versus Jaws, you know, like uh, last time we saw him, he was, you know, teetering on the edge of mortality or whatever, you know, like, how will we get out of the situation? I'll never forget. I took my old, at the time, aunt to see Jaws, and she hadn't been to the movies in years and years. Mm-hmm. And I was like, she, she'll like this. She'll like this. And, and she it, was like, it's, it was okay, but it was a ripoff of Moby Dick. Right, right, right. I guess, I guess, yeah. I guess the sort of Quint angle, the sort of Quint character, really is a, a big uh, either allusion to or ripoff of uh, Captain Ahab and Moby Dick. Right? And Spielberg, an homage. Let's call it an homage. Wanted him to play Quint. Who's that actor? I'm trying to think of. Um, Boys from Brazil. Oh, uh, Gregory Peck. Gregory Peck. Right, and Gregory right. was like, I love that Boys from Brazil is the one that you thought of for Gregory. Right. Not like to kill a <laughs> mockingbird. You know, Boys from Brazil, where he plays like Joseph Mengele, you know, where he's doing all those exper- Nazi experiments on children. No, that's his legacy. That's Gregory me. Peck, the Nazi doctor. Yeah. Um, anyway, Gregory was like, yeah, he was respectful of it. And he said, but I just, I don't want to do anything that's going to get people on to Moby Dick again, like I'm doing that again, you know, uh, or be compared to that in any way. Right. Like, originally, the Quint costume was just a Moby Dick t-shirt. Yeah. A big, bright Moby Dick t-shirt. But they're like, nah, let's just give him this ratty old, like, then de- he went denim to, shirt. He's got to nuke the whale's shirt. He went to Lee Marvin, and Lee Marvin was, ah, I'd rather go fishing than be out on a boat right, right. for a year or whatever. <laughs> that reminds he, me of... He went to Lee Marvin, the only actor that was drinking more heavily than Robert Shaw at the time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that just reminded me of that great scene where, uh, where Quint takes the call from Brody's wife. Yeah, he's fishing. He's not... <laughs> yeah, and that's something on there right now. That was Spielberg who called on the radio. That was Spielberg's voice. I, I find it fascinating that Quint, like, like he could just ignore it, but he, he, it's almost like he wants to to talk to her to specifically yeah, yeah. say, "Put like, her on." He can't come to the phone. He's just fishing. 
Like, you know, like. But he said, put her on. Yeah, yeah. He's got a real, he's got a real power trip. He's going. got no use for phone talking now. <laughs> he's on the scene. Your husband's all right, Mrs. Brody. Yeah. We should just re-record the entire podcast with you doing that voice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I just, I just pictured like that. She's actually in bed with the mayor at the time, you know, on the other <laughs> end of the line. Like, and he's got the the stupid jacket hung up on like the the, the hook on the back of the. Or bed she's wearing it as she gets yeah, out of the yeah, shower. She, or she, yeah, she just wears it to go out in the other room to make the phone. Well, call. in the book, she's supposed to have a relationship uh, with. Hooper. Really? Yeah. They cut that out. Because of the name? Is it because of his name? It evokes a certain thing. Isn't the book like very sexually graphic, I think? I I don't remember, but I don't remember liking it either. But I saw it years after seeing the movie. Well, I think it's one of those those things where I think, think, uh, you know, it's one of those few films that's apparently better than the book. Because I think apparently, I've never read the book, but apparently like it's just a pulp, just sort of like a pulp throwaway kind of dime store novel. Uh, that you know was turned into this great riveting film. I, you know, and in a way, the film is a pulp film too. It's sort of a B film, but it's just like a really well done. It's like you know a textbook of like how to make sort of like a B suspense film. You know, and uh, you know, but I just remember like a friend of mine was reading it. Like I think when we were in public school or something like that. Like he had like Peter Benchley Jaws or whatever. And I think he was like reading me these real like. Uh, X-rated sections of it. You know, I don't know if there were scenes with like Brody and his wife or something. Or yeah, they definitely had an, an <laughs> but there was definitely there may have been. You know, some uh, some blue passages. And I'm not talking about water here. Yeah, <laughs> I like the relationship though. I like the way that it's presented in the movie. That yeah, they're just yeah. kind of like totally you know, like swingers. The, the kids are out playing in the water. What do you want to do? I don't know. You want to get drunk and fool around? Get drunk. Yeah, and, yeah. Fool and the shark around. did not die the way it does in the movie. Nope. It was like like weighted down or something with ropes and hooks. Like and, Jason Voorhees right. style. Yeah, it was like really yeah. boring. Setting up for the sequel. Yeah, yeah. totally. And Spielberg and, and, and Spielberg said, no, no, it's got to <laughs> blow up like this. And, and of course, eventually of was course. like, no, no, this is crazy. Are you mind? I, so watching this again, because I, I mean, I'll out myself as being quite underread when it comes to movies, but... There's no judgment here. I've no. only ever seen this movie twice. So the first time when I saw it, and I was like, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. And then now re-watching it. Have you seen it at the Highland? I will be. Oh, you've not seen it? I haven't seen it at the Highland. Here? So that's something that I want to talk oh, about. Oh, are you in for a treat? Is, uh, well, when he's, <laughs> he's going to blow up the shark, and it's like... They already set up that, yes, these tanks are explosive earlier when Hooper's mm-hmm. like, you idiot, right, don't right. let this thing fall over. The obligatory but then, exposition. <laughs> but then he's like narrating his thought process. He's like, no, I need to shoot this thing. Blow up. Damn it. Why won't you blow up? Blow up. And like <laughs> it takes away all the tension because he's walking you through what his whole plan is the but entire time. But there's still the, can he hit it? There, yeah. Okay, this, sure. That's, this, a, this that's, like, of... uh, that's quite the shot. That's better than Oswald. That, that kind of, like, didacticism, though, is, like, why I started, like, you know, getting irritated with later period Spielberg, you know, where, every, where everything was, was very, like, over-explained and had to be sort of, like, you know, very by the book, like, you know, the good guys always had to win and there was no moral ang- ambiguity between characters and, that, you know, no matter what, even the most minor character had gone through by the end, they all had to be, like, happy and smiling and laughing and stuff. And, and uh, he's, always, he's always had a little bit of that... Uh, you know, kind of uh, the Hollywoodishness or whatever. This really wants to make it fit. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, I think you know. Not that it takes anything away from how spectacular it is when no, the goddamn shark blows up. I think up. he makes films. I it think blew he, up real good. I think he he tries to make films for like the widest audience possible. Like I think I think he wants to make films that everyone's gonna go see and everyone's gonna love. 
you know and and with that like when you when you when you're making films for like a really broad audience you have to, to take into consideration like all sides of the spectrum and say you know are there going to be some people out here that don't quite get what's going on or some people that didn't pick up on the foreshadowing or that don't know any you know and it's uh, sometimes like i find it irritating if i feel like a film's talking down to me but like but you know i mean he is like one of the big i mean he's probably the biggest i mean it's debatable right i mean there's george lucas and so forth but i mean he, he's one of the biggest most epic filmmakers of all time, right? The most well-known, most off-screen And that was filmmakers. his first theatrical movie. Like, Duel was not really... Yeah, because Duel was like a TV movie, yeah. I think, right? Although overseas, I think it was theatrical. The but. interesting thing about Duel is that, um, you know, he was very young when he directed it. Like, he was just, just like, what, like t early 20s or something, right? And they wanted him to shoot all the truck stuff with, like, a green screen or something. Or, like, I don't know if they had green screen back then, but, like, rear projection, I guess it would have been. Um, you know, because it was just way too difficult to shoot, like, all, you know, just to have a limited budget for a TV movie with this really young director and the small crew and everything. They were basically like, there's no way that you can film all these crazy car chase sequences with the truck out on the highway and all this, you know, from all these different angles and how, you know. But Spielberg was just really adamant that it had to be all filmed for real because he said, you know, there's all these shots from the inside of the of, of the car and stuff like that with Dennis Weaver and stuff. And it's like you can see the the truck barreling at him from through mm -hmm. the back windshield. So, and he said, if we had to do all this stuff with rear projection, it would just look so cheesy and fake yeah. that nobody would find this scary. Stuff it like that at he, that time everyone took for yeah. granted and he didn't. He's, He's like, no, he this said, is important. He said, you know, if everyone can see that it's fake and the, tr and the truck's not really there, it's not going to scare people. So he really had like cameras mounted on the car where he was really had Dennis Weaver in the shot and he'd really have the truck accelerate and zoom up behind him and like hit him or whatever and stuff in it and and you'd, you'd really see through the real back window the road behind him and then suddenly the truck would just come around a corner and start barreling toward him and coming up on him and and he did all this stuff for real and I think he had about three chances to do it like he shot like one pass like from one angle and then the other one from the other angle and then one from like dead like he only he kind of filmed all the car chase stuff just about three times with just like one setup each and then they were basically like that's it and just and he wound up like cutting it together in this really masterful way, and 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 it's one of the first things he ever did at a very young age, and it's just like uh, pretty intense to throw yourself into like really hands-on location mobile shooting like that in vehicles yeah. out on the highway. Like, uh, do you do you guys know about the sound effect when the rig is going off the cliff? No, no. they that's in slow motion, and there's a slow motion sound of a dinosaur roaring. And they had a to go back in time. T-Rex. They had to go that back same, in time to get the audio. Yeah. For it. <laughs> the same sound effect is used in Jurassic Jaws Park? when the shark is go after it blows up and it's going down right, underwater. Right, right, right. You can hear a slight roar. There, there's like a like a, a female scream or something in the scene where uh, Hooper goes under the boat because he wants to check the hull or whatever. Uh, yeah. When they find the the fisherman, like the missing fisherman's floating boat. And he's uh, got the flashlight and everything. And he, and he goes over to the one, uh, you know, big missing section or whatever in the you know, the bloated dead corpse of the guy uh, with his eye missing and some sort of sea creature is like yeah. rooted into his eyesight or whatever. And there's this like, <laughs> like yeah. female like scream, this sort of like blood, just for a second, just this blood curling. Like, there's, <laughs> also, like, there's also a bit of a psycho. Yeah, yeah, just like a, like a sting, like a, yeah. like a, like a string sting, um, which is kind of amusing. Greg Nicotero reproduced that head in uh, The Walking Dead. So the, the governor's got that head in one of those. Right, 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 right. Yeah, really interesting. Really interesting. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of uh, trivia about severed heads in movies, like the George Bush head in Game of Thrones, 
when they uh, oh, yeah. I don't want to I don't want to say a major Game of Thrones spoiler here, but I when, a, seen any when a certain character uh, perishes in season one and their head is put on like a spike in front of uh, King's Landing or whatever, um, they wanted to have all these other heads that were out there on these just these like rotting heads on these spikes that had been like beheaded and stuck out front, and uh, you know, and they had a limited budget they were working with, and, and originally they were gonna like create these heads, but they just said no, it's gonna be too expensive to sculpt like another five or six photorealistic looking heads so they just wound up buying like a discount box of heads from somewhere you know like this like some film you know some other film that was you know being done or something they just bought like all these heads and they just sort of like redressed them you know and like uh distressed and redressed them and and uh and they didn't realize at the time until later but one of the heads was george bush jr I don't know what it would have been from, you know. I don't know if it's from the W movie Oliver Stone did, or I don't remember a beheading scene in that. But uh, maybe there's like a like a nightmare scene that wasn't wasn't didn't make the final cut or something. But uh, but yeah, they 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 realized I think after they'd already like edited it all together and aired it that like a lot of people were saying, what's what's up with the the George Bush head? And then and then you look and 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 it was George Bush, like George W. Bush, you know, just on this spike in this medieval fantasy world. And uh, and then it, it, like it created such a big thing that when the, the the DVD and Blu-ray came out, they actually had to go in and like CGI the bush head out and put like seriously another head in because yeah because they were they were oh, get, so like getting in there. trouble or something or they were going to get like sued or something. I was just about to buy the Blu-ray because you know like mur murdering the president of your country like and you know and then you know putting it out in a Blu-ray service. I guess I just thought that was a bit uh, you know anti-American or something. <laughs> Too like not PC. Right? I'm sure a lot of people wanted to do just that. Yeah. But, uh, but I guess it was just not uh, sanctioned by HBO. Okay, so the question that I have for you guys, which, I mean, this is a, kind of a, a grilling question, I guess. So I just watched this movie, and I specifically watched it in, like, the shittiest quality oh, no. possible yeah. in order to ask this question. So, yeah. I mean, the whole idea, the whole gimmick of this podcast is things that are on Netflix. So I actually watched this not just on Netflix, but I watched the movie on my phone. Oh, on, to on watch a cracked iPhone for as, <laughs> as small as possible so that I could ask you. So for somebody like me who's now seen the story again, and I mean, like the movie's still, yeah. even shrinking it down, I still felt a lot of the excitement and everything. So in this world of Netflix, where specifically for something like this, where Jaws is available to stream, what's going to be the difference for somebody who like me who's uninitiated when it comes to like really seeing the difference between different... Uh, the way I see it, Different you watched it and you got like 20% of it. You got 20% of the truth. Now, if you watch it on DVD, you might get 40% of the truth. If you watch it on Blu-ray, you'll get like 60, 70%. You watch it at the Highland with a film print, you're going to get 100% of the truth of this movie, the experience. You're going to feel the Atlantic Ocean splashing on your face. Truth is going to be and at you 24 frames per You're going to know that this is an original print. The print is from 1975. It's 40, whatever, two years old, whatever it is. And it has a history itself. So it's really cool to know you're watching something that people were watching 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. Here's something that survived. And a lot of it is very, very minty. And so, it's, 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 a, it's an experience. So as I think the word cinephile is probably the, yeah. the right word to describe to both of you. Not to I'm mention not to be big screen. With, with other words that end in file. Uh, Although to be fair, about half of them do apply to you. So don't, don't get it's, too defensive. It's big screen, really big screen, bright, really bright, clear, mm -hmm. colorful. The colors just pop off the screen. Yeah, there's no and the sound, it's the original mono soundtrack. And that'll really be 
you know, you're going to go deaf sure. by the end of the night. And, um, I, and I'm asking this question as a fan of Retromania specifically, because I think that I've actually this year seen more Retromania movies oh, nice. with you guys than I have gone to the movies. Because oh, pretty much the only things that I go to anymore, because I have all this stuff available to me on Netflix, where... Yeah. You know, would I rather spend $45 to go see a movie that I don't really care about? Or would I rather spend that time at home, you know, ordering dinner and for the same amount of money watch something that right. is decent or that I know I like on a fairly decent sized TV? But I also I, I appreciate the experience of going to the movies. Like, I think that is the best way to watch yeah. a movie because that's the environment that these movies were originally created for. Yeah. And I don't have, you know, like a stereo system and hopefully, in my yeah, house or anything like that. there's going to be a good crowd there with you, and mm-hmm. you're going to sort of yeah. have a bond with them. In yeah, a that's way. the thing with the Retromania crowd is that everybody's there because they really want to be. You know, yeah. sometimes when you go to a multiplex, it's just people on dates, or there's just somebody that got dragged to something, or they got right. to want a free pass, or, you know. But Retromania, it's like, you know, th- these are old films that, you know, a lot of people own these on DVD or Blu-ray. Some of them are on Netflix. They can be downloaded, you know, all stuff. So... When people come out because they want to see Beetlejuice or, uh, you know, um, True Romance or, Re- or Reservoir Dogs or The Big Lebowski or something like that in the theater, it's because they're usually like big fans of the movie, you know, and they just want to see. Like, you know, we, we screened RoboCop and there were, you know, and a lot of people came out for that because people yeah. were saying, you know, sure, I can watch my, my RoboCop DVD or I can, da- you know, download it and watch it on my computer. But, you know, like a lot of a lot of these people weren't actually old enough to go see RoboCop in the theater. Yeah. Oh, I got when it originally came out. That came to T2 the first time. So right. I never, I, I just can't believe I got to see this on the big screen. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. So I mean, this movie's. Some of these are really great 92, theater movies. Like I, d- I did actually see Terminator 2 when it, when it first came out in theaters. Yeah. And it was just such a, an amazing theater experience. It was just yeah. such an immersive, at the time, no one had done like yeah. effects like that before. It was just such an epic sort of balls out blo- summer blockbuster, you know. And so it was like, um, you know, people will say, you know, I've seen Terminator 2 50 times, but I've never seen it in the theater. You know, they want to know what it feels like to sit down in a theater and on with the big screen and all these other people and, and watch Terminator 2 or Total yeah. Recall or, you know, Alien or something like that. Yeah. You know, so that's way. what you're going to get, Dylan. You're going to get that. Well, I'm sure that there's a ton of stuff that we didn't get a chance to get to, but we're, uh, we're past the two-hour mark at this point. I'm just so. getting started. So I do want to uh, wrap this up the same way that we always do. So... In, I guess, Victor, in your case, this is hypothetical, but uh, for this movie, we always like to assign a star rating. So one star means you hate it. This is based on Netflix's own criteria. So one star means you hated it. Two stars means didn't like it. Three stars means liked it. Four stars is really liked it. And five stars means you loved the movie. And then just your MVP, the favorite thing about the movie or the favorite person about it. So, Victor, can I invite you to give your answer first? Okay, absolutely easy. Five stars. Mm -hmm. And... um I I love the cinematography by Bill Butler. He's not been talked about at all on this Jaws podcast. Great cinematography. Great. Yeah. Any, any final thoughts about the movie? Um, I love everything about the movie. The direction, the, the, the acting, the story, the way it was written. What I now know are mistakes and, and things they had to do that way that work so, so well. And it just, when I watch it, especially when I watch it on a big screen at the Highland, or even at home on Blu-ray, with my home video projection, it takes me right back to when I was a kid when I first saw it. Like I can actually sit there and feel like that. So that's magic. That's my flux capacitor. I like it, Jeremy. How about yourself? Um, 
Uh, it, in terms of its, like, I'd say probably, like, on a personal level, probably a four, but I'd say, um, in terms of, like, just its place in, like, the pantheon of, like, cinema and, like, uh, and its function as, like, a, you know, total, like, you know, uh, quintessential thriller suspense picture, you know, I think it's got to be, like, a five. I mean, it's, like, one of the classics, you know, I mean, there's a lot you know all the all the classic 70s thriller and horror films you know you get like the shining the exorcist the texas chainsaw massacre um alien all this stuff you know it's definitely in that canon you know i th i think this film is like a template i think that this is a film you know that uh, you know is probably studied in film schools in terms of like how to craft suspenseful scenes and how to how to you know stage scenes and thrillers and even act even like on the water action scenes and stuff like that like i think i think uh that this is like a very important film in the genre of like uh adventure thriller suspense you know even i guess the case could be made for horror although it's not very super graphic or horrific but um but yeah it's a great uh action adventure film that i think has really stood the test of time i think people still watch this film and love this film and and, and that so many things about it are iconic in terms of MVPs, um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to uh, I'm gonna have to have three MVPs. I think I'm gonna have to say Harry's bad hat is gonna have to be an MVP. I'm gonna have to say hat, the weird salty old dog guy that like comes out of the uh, comes out of the <laughs> Amity Harbor Master's <laughs> office. Uh, the, the Norman Rockwell painting come to life guy is gonna have to be some kind of MVP as well. Uh, but but yeah, but for me, it's it's Robert Shaw like it's all about Robert Shaw, you know I mean everybody's great in this film like Richard Dreyfuss is great everybody uh, Roy Scheider and everybody but um Robert Shaw just like he utterly makes this film I mean it's like the film is good for like the first half hour or so as soon as Quint You know screeches his way down the chalkboard. It's like it just becomes great, right? Like it's <laughs> like he just he really injects some some juice into the th like, like, what would the word some some electricity you know as, as soon as he's on on screen you know you're just kind of like okay you know now yeah. now we're we're ready to go out in the water you know yeah. uh so yeah like an, an absolutely classic film yeah. i'm gonna say five stars for mine uh the first time i saw it i was just i think that i was also in a mind space that i was just kind of like i'm not gonna enjoy this, this movie's 40 years old and it's a fucking shark movie like there's no way that this is as good as as everybody says it is and then it was it was it was just everything um and I, I enjoyed it probably as much this time around it's more that i just i can't find anything that i would have problems with would be nitpicking for the sake of nitpicking it's like what what else could you do with this movie to make it any better mm. and the answer is not a whole hell of a lot so i think it's absolutely terrific it's one of my favorites i think on my my letterboxd account i've got it as one of my four favorite movies so I think it still deserves to be there. I, I I just want to add to what you were saying too about the watchability of Jaws. I think it actually gets better and better with each viewing. I think I think it's one of those films that you know it's a simple film. It's a simply constructed film. It's 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 like basically like a B picture. It's like it's got a very simple plot like shark shark and you know is terrorizing people in a small you know uh, f fishing area community. You know I mean it's 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 very simple direct minimal kind of plot and story but um but basically you know it, ju it just has so much sort of nuance to it i mean i mean they just did such a great job kind of making this community seem real and all the characters have their little 
quirks and, and, and hang-ups and things like that. And then they're also colorful, you know, especially the, the, the trilogy of, you know, like Hooper and Brody and Quint and everything like that. And, and uh, you know, even just random townsfolk and, and stuff. And I think that, like, every time you watch it, you know, you kind of, it just sort of gets better and better and better. Because you know the story. Once you've seen it once, you mean you know the story, you know what's going to happen. But just all the little subtle details and atmospheric details about, you know, this place and you know, what's going on there and everything like that. It's just, uh, like I said before, it's kind of like an old friend, you know, that you only see maybe like once a year or something at Christmas time or whatever when they're <laughs> in town and you go out for a drink with them or whatever. And it's just, it just feels like old times, you know. Hmm. And so it does have that nostalgic quality yeah. to it. For my MVP, I chose Roy Scheider, not out of any disrespect for Robert Shaw, but I feel like the movie does hit another level when Robert Shaw shows up on the scene, but he needs that anchor. Because you're not going to watch a Quint-headed movie. I think that would be too much. Or I guess you'd call it Pirates of the Caribbean. You pretty much have sure. that movie. But uh, yeah, I think that Roy Scheider really grounds the thing with his sometimes almost like doofish clumsiness <laughs> and <laughs> and things like that. But yeah, I, I, it's neck and neck for the two of them. But I figured someone else was going to pick Robert Shaw. So I just wanted to give a shout out for Roy Scheider for... For really grounding the thing and you know i'm sure that's not what roy scheider is actually like like it's a it's a character come to life yeah. that feels like you're just watching some guy deal with a problem yeah like maybe he's just totally loopy in real life or something <laughs> like he's like the lampshade on the head guy at the party i think you need this the straight man quote unquote i think i think in order for the really colorful characters you know in a piece of work whether whether it's a book or a stage play or a film or whatever in order in order for the the real wild colorful characters work you, you know you often need like somebody to really root it down at the core you know like you need a like a real stoic sort of straight man in order to encounter like these other people like i think if the movie was just all hoopers and quints and stuff and all these crazy people on the high sea you know it, it would just be almost maybe like farcical but the fact that you have this very down-to-earth serious stoic you know sort of main character that has these sort of like this ptsd kind of hang-ups you know about the water and everything like mm -hmm. that and then when you add the other characters into the mix like it, it turns into an interesting sort of yeah. sort of stew, but he's he's straight without being boring because he has those little moments where he like checks his shirt or yeah. My, one of my favorite just shots from the movie is when he, uh, it's when they're chasing the shark after attaching the barrel to him, and where Brody is, they're like, all right, you're you know hit the engines, you're the one you're the one driving now. He's got this smile on his face where he's finally like in touch with what's going on. He feels like he's contributing to the team, and he has this this nice little moment to himself right before like all the shit hits the fan. Yeah, but he's yeah. he's granted like this moment of moment. yeah this moment of serenity. He he really won me over with his reaction to you know when uh, you know he's had a stressful day at work. The kids are playing outside. His wife hands him that scotch or whatever, and she just says, "You want to get drunk and fool around or whatever?" And he just immediately says, "Oh yeah." Yeah. Like it's just, he's just like you know so many movie characters we like you know deflect it somehow or they you know they have important <laughs> business they had to take care of or and this isn't the time honey or whatever but he's just like fuck yeah I do <laughs> you know bring it on one scene that has a these years that has a soft place in my heart is just the meeting when between Hooper and Brody when uh, Hooper comes into that little shack and he says uh uh well, Brody says, I'm Brody, I'm Brody. And, he, and then Hooper's, oh, you know, yeah. just that little interaction. It's so real, it's so great, and it's so uh, well shot. Like, the, it's beautiful. And you can see outside, you can see everybody outside, and mm -hmm. he's throwing rocks mm -hmm. at the window just before yeah. that. And, he, and the guy, wa his deputy waves at him, thinking that that's what the rocks meant. 
Right. But it meant, no, come in here. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's that's this movie is made up of so many of these. I feel like you could take almost any scene and be like, "Yeah, I love this moment in this scene where this happened." Like mm-hmm. it's it's really that's what I'm talking really about. Really well constructed. The little, the little idiosyncratic uh, like atmospheric details is like when he you know he's trying to get the guy's attention when he's on the phone, but the cord won't reach that long, so he just grabs like a handful of gravel or whatever and throws <laughs> it at the window. Yeah. That's just like a little thing where it's just like something that he would do specifically in that room because there would be like some shit lying on a table somewhere from the sea. You know, and he would just like do that, yeah. and that's just sort of a thing that, you know, would would just happen in the moment. But yeah. like people don't usually put details like that in films. You know, yeah. like this little, little things like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's all great. Oh, and there was no steady cams back then. All this stuff on the ship mm-hmm. is handheld. But really. uh, Bill Butler, he did a thing where he just sort of waved. You know, the motion of the ship. A lot of it looks. He very moved with it, just to try to hold the camera steady, and uh, it worked. No one thought it could be done. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for, one, coming on and doing this and having this conversation and doing this podcast, and two, for doing what you do with Retromania and uh, you know, trying to remind people about what all this is like, but choosing the stuff that we want to see, which is also the stuff that you want to see, and, and really giving me a reason to get out to an actual theater and not just cynically pay more money to Disney for Marvel movies. So You're very <laughs> welcome, son. Thank you, Dylan. This was fun. Yeah, and thanks for having us, and thanks for uh, helping us, uh, you know, s- thanks for supporting our retro events in the Highland Cinema and just uh, independent cinema in London in general. All right, that's going to be everything for this week from the Netflix podcast. If you like what you heard today, head on over to netflixblog.wordpress.com to check out the rest of the Netflix content, like articles, show notes, and reviews. You can also find us on all sorts of social media platforms. We're on Facebook as Netflix, Twitter at NetflixPod, where you can also find me at Dylan Clark Moore. Retromania is on Facebook, correct? Yes. Yes, we have a Retromania at the Highland Cinema Facebook page. And you can find it from our website, which is triple di- www.highlandcinema.com. Right. And then for every Retromania, there's a Facebook event. Yeah. There's yeah. three There's three different f- tiers to this, right? There's just a Highland Cinema Facebook page. Yeah, we have a Highland the Cinema itself. Facebook page. And then, and then a there's Retromania. a Retromania at the Highland Cinema that you know where we post you know what we're showing every month and put little anecdotes and YouTube videos and documentaries and interviews and stuff. But then we also make a specific event page yeah. for each screening. Like there's an event page for Jaws this month where you can join or say that you're coming or going. Or Well, I'll be sure to include links to all of those on the uh, episode's show notes as well. You can also find Netflix on Tumblr and SoundCloud as Netflix Podcast. You can also find me on Letterboxd as Dylan Clark Moore. That's where I post all of the movies that I've been watching as well as it's the only place where you can find a list of all the movies that we're going to be talking about moving forward on the podcast. If you'd like to support the show, there are a few ways you can do so. Uh, The best one is, of course, to tell people about what we're doing here because that's how people find out about things and people are way more likely to trust the opinions of their friends and family than it is to trust the opinions of strangers on the internet. Uh, You can also head over to iTunes or whichever podcast platform you prefer and subscribe so that each week's episode comes straight to you. While you're there, you can drop a rating and a review to let us know what you think. You can, if you feel so inclined, also contribute directly to Netflix by way of our Patreon campaign. Uh, unfortunately, this shit is not free. There's uh, all sorts of costs that can sometimes be associated with making one of these, or at least making one that sounds halfway decent. So if you're interested in supporting, uh, be sure to head over to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search for Netflix, or you can just go to the blog and hit support Netflix at the top of the page. The Netflix podcast is produced and edited by me, Dylan Clark Moore. The theme music was provided by Zach Moore. 
Thank you very sincerely for checking out this week's episode of the Netflix podcast. And be sure to join me here soon for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog. Because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet.